You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a retired Army Green Beret, who now owns an investment company and a wildly successful podcast and YouTube channel. We'll get to him coming up in just a moment, but please continue to uh, adhere to the normal reminders I give you guys every week. Please follow us on social media. All the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to that YouTube channel. Smash that like button. Give a thumbs up. Tell us why you love the content. We certainly appreciate it there. Apple reviews, continue to leave them. Uh, help grow the algorithm of the show. I know you guys hear me say this every single week, uh, but it is important that you guys continue to grow the Hazard Ground community. We can do it with your help just by uh, leaving some more comments in there. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. As well, our promotion with Amazon always continues. You go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Hey, holidays are right around the corner, folks. So if you're doing some Amazon shopping, Shopping. Go to hazardground.com first. When it redirects you there, do all your normal shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's a great way to help out veterans charities without having to do anything other than some Amazon shopping. Also works from your smartphone. It'll redirect it to the app. So if you save your credit card information, really user-friendly and easy to get it done there as well. So uh, if you guys have any other comments for the show, hit the contact us uh, tab on the on the website, of course, producer at hazardground.com. Uh, we love hearing feedback from you guys one way or another. Appreciate it. All right. This week's guest is a retired Army Master Sergeant who spent 20 years in the military. 15 of those were with uh, the Green Berets and its Special Forces, the 3rd Special Forces Group. He had a total of six deployments overseas, including to Iraq and Afghanistan. He also uh, hosts a show on his YouTube channel called the Green Beret Chronicles. Uh, there's more of that with a podcast within that. He also has his own Real estate investment company, Dorlius Investment Group. Uh, he's continuing to build that as well. Jay Dorlius joins us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jay, welcome, man. Thank you for being here. Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, I appreciate the invite, Mark. Absolutely. So born in Haiti, I should have mentioned that at the beginning, born in Haiti and a New Yorker. So we'll get along quite well. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the Yankees had, even though they kind of stink right now. Uh, <laughs> we, won't, we won't waste any time on that. But, uh, you know, we got connected through another guest here on the show, Daryl Lutt, who uh, continues to work the uh, uh, Medal of Honor Museum that's being erected in uh, in, in, in Dallas, Texas. So uh, check out Daryl's work as well. But I know you guys cross paths and he's followed you on social media. You're starting to grow this huge sort of following uh, on your YouTube channel and everything else. Excited to hear about that. But start back in the beginning, brother. Uh, how and why did you end up in the Army? Yeah, so um, again, grew up in, well, I was born in Haiti, uh, moved to New York City. Uh, when I was 10, um, of course, learned uh, English, which, you know, some may say it's an easy language to learn, but when you're 10, you know, from uh, Haiti and you're trying to learn this confusing language, um, it's it was difficult, right? So I learned the language, um, got through middle school, got through high school, um, and then I did one year in college. I went to City College up in uh, uh, Harlem, right? Um, and again, I realized how much I didn't know the English, the uh, 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 English language, because I fell English 101, and I was like, you know what, this college stuff just isn't for me. Uh, and But prior to uh, 9-11 had happened, right? Because I went to George Westinghouse High School, which is right uh, across the bridge from Lower Manhattan. So I witnessed that, 
walk home uh, once that took place. So that that was always in the back of my mind. So after fucking out of college, I had an older brother that was in the Navy at the time. That was my initial introduction to the military uh, just from speaking with him. Um, I realized that, hey, college isn't for me. I'm not disciplined enough. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning how to speak English, essentially. Um, and I didn't want to waste any time. I, and I was one out of eight kids, so my parents were busy with other things. And I didn't want to be a burden. So I, with all that in mind, I just went for it. I joined the military. Um, I was uh, 18 at the time. And and that was it. I, I, I never looked back. Um, but I also had looked into being a New York City cop, right? It was military New York City cop. Um, I spoke to a New York City uh, a, a, a policeman recruiter, and he was like, hey, you either have two years of college or you have military experience. So I was like, okay, I'll go get the military experience. Um, so went in the military, hoping to get that experience, get out and go be in NYPD, but I, I loved it so much that I never turned back. And 20 years later, uh, here we are. When you look back at your time in Haiti, I'm curious. I mean, look, it's a very sort of impoverished country, right? It's, yeah. it's not, you know, uh, as soon as they build everything up, a hurricane comes through and rips it all down. I mean, that's kind of just yeah. the existence of Haiti, not to, not to mention no real formal government uh, that, that you know, uh, <clears throat> benefits the people the way it does in America. I mean, I'm curious about that transition, just getting to America and sort of the transition into the army. Were there any sort of similarities into making this big sort of cultural shift uh, in your life from Haiti to the United States and then just as a civilian into the Army? Yeah, so um, when I came to the state initially, um, I thought I was visiting, right? I thought I was coming to visit uh, and then I was going to go back and uh, 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 hang out with my grandmother because my mom and dad were in the States. My grandmother initially, well, she raised us in Haiti. So I was, so, so I thought I was just coming to visit and then I would go back, right? Uh, and then when I once I found out I was staying, uh, it was rough adjusting to it because I was 10 years old, right? Uh, leading up to that point, 10 years of my life had been in Haiti. So um, once I got to the States, uh, it was rough trying to get used to the culture. Again, the biggest thing was the language because as soon as I got to the States, I jumped right into school. You know, and I'm 10 years old. We all know how mean kids could be at that age, right? It's like, um, you know, I didn't know how to speak English. I didn't know the culture. Uh, so I was getting used to it. Eventually, I got it, right? Uh, but it was definitely difficult. And then, um, so yes, the culture shock was there. And of course, uh, to compare it to the military, you know, when I joined initially, that was another culture shock, right? But again, I had just went through it, you know, eight years prior to, so I was used to it at this point. Uh, and then, of course, went through my military career and then culture shock again, I'm getting out. Like I said, all things that I've been used to, but it all started with me initially leaving Haiti and uh, coming to the States. So yeah, it definitely prepared me for what I was going to face later on in life. I don't want to jump too far forward uh, in your story. I'm just sort of curious. Yeah. Uh, you grew up in Haiti, and then you walk the grounds in some of the suburbs or cities of Iraq, and the same thing in Afghanistan. Uh, I've never been to Haiti. I've only seen pictures, but I feel like it looks a lot similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So as far as poverty goes, um, and it's something that, I, I truly believe worked to my benefit because it helped me relate to some of the folks that I saw in those countries, right? Um, so I, like when I'm speaking to them, you know, and it's something that, you know, being in the military, we see all the time, like American soldier goes abroad and some of them are assholes. Let's just be frank about it. Uh, yeah. But I was always one of those dudes that was like, hey man, like these people are people also, right? In another dimension, in another universe, 
that could have been me. That could have been you, American soldier, and me, civilian, in Haiti, and you're doing work, right? Which in 1994, that was a thing, right? I was in Haiti in 1994, and I remember the helicopters going above, and I remember seeing American soldiers. So I'm like, hey, that was me at one point, right? So now that I'm here and the uh, roles are reversed, I still got to keep in mind that, hey, these individuals, like, they're still human beings, right? They were dealt this card and they're making the best out of it. So if anything, it helped me better relate the folks and what they were going through. Yeah. No. Again, I, I I certainly can appreciate that. They're they're, you know, I, I've always said to to people, um, you know, war in and of itself um, shows you the depravity of of the human condition, right? Uh, but when you go and see the literal depravity in other countries that they live in, um, for everybody who likes to take a dump on America now and then, it's like go, go spend some time. In, uh, in in southern Baghdad, let me know what you're looking at. Go spend some time in Najaf or in Mosul or, you know, uh, even Mahmoudiyah, just south of Baghdad. Like you look around, you, these clay buildings that are barely standing, uh, people making food out of these mud huts and somehow creating fire on their own. And people are lined up a mile long just to get something to eat. I mean, it's, you know, until you see stuff like that on a routine, you know, you don't really get a grasp of, oh, you mean there's a McDonald's like oh, half a mile away? You know, like, it's just, it, it's, it's, you have to experience it to relate it. And it always kind of surprised me. Some, as you mentioned, the a-holes, you know, some of the demeanor of some of, uh, some of the people is just like, look, man, uh, the, the, at, at its basic core function, the biggest loss in combat is humanity, right? Like that's, that's kind of, and, and any time that you, you can sort of preserve humanity in combat, it's, it's something that you should do. Look, again, I'm not saying you don't pull the trigger or I'm not saying, you know, if you have to choose them or me, you choose, you know, them. But I am saying that there are moments within combat um, when you're bumping a little children on the streets or they're following your Humvee down the road, you know, you don't have to treat them like less than people um, just because we're the superior force uh, in a country. And I always thought that was an important lesson for people to learn. Yeah. I agree with, with you hundred um... percent. And it's something that I try to practice everywhere that I go. And till this day, as I coach, teach, and mentor some of these younger, uh, 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 you know, girls and, and gents that are trying to join the military to do uh, something great in themselves, I always tell them, like, hey, whenever you put this uniform on, like, keep in mind that you are, you know, serving this country and you're representing this country. So you got to carry yourself. As such, wherever you go around the world, right, you got to treat people as you want to be treated. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, like, I'll get, you know, uh, the random question of, hey, why should I serve? And I'm like, well, if you don't serve, then who will, right? If you don't want the U.S. to turn into Mosul or some of these other places, then you got to raise your hand and you got to go do your part. Because at the end of the day, this is still the greatest country, you know, on earth. You know, I mean, like, I know because I've experienced the other ones. You know what I mean? So uh, hopefully, you know, folks down here will stop taking it for granted and they'll start to appreciate what we actually have and want to do their part to maintain this way a lot. I, I heard a comedian once deadpan that uh, being a true patriot means recognizing that America sucks, but every place else is about a thousand times worse. <laughs> yeah. That's a fair statement. Yeah, that's yeah. well stated. Uh, let's get back to you. So you, you signed up for the Army. Did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have any idea what you thought you were going to do? No, so at this point, like I said, the only experience that I have with the military is, you know, my older brother who was in the Navy, um, and I know I didn't want to go join the Navy. Um, so I went and spoke with a recruiter, 
got my options, um, and Combat Engineer came up. They had this nice little fancy videos of, you know, us blowing shit up, whether it's a bridge, a house, and I slowly gravitated towards that, and that's what I decided to do at the time. Um, so, yeah, signed up for 12 Bravo, went to basic, up at Fort Lane Woods, same with AIT, and once I got done with that, I got assigned to uh, uh, um, uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, over first ID. Big Red One uh, coming at you. Uh, time. <laughs> when do you get to Fort Riley? So I got to Fort Riley uh, July of 2003. Okay, Iraq had already kicked off, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Iraq had been going on for... Four months. I want to say because March 2003 was around the time that Iraq started. So I was four months into Iraq because March, because Iraq was going on while I was in basic training. Right. And my drill sergeant would mess with us. They would, you know, wake us up in the middle of the night and they would, you know, you know, toss out our room and they would tell us to pack all our crap. The bus is here, it's picking us up and it's taking us straight to uh, the airport. So we'd go to Iraq and dudes were just losing their minds. And I'm like, I don't think that's what's going to happen. So quit crying. <laughs> um, so I remember that vividly. So when I got that's to Fort Riley. Man. That's just me. That's yeah. Just... <laughs> hey, those were the good old days, right? Like it, it, they had an end state in mind um, and they achieved it, right? They made us tougher because uh, as soon as I got to my unit, July of 2003, I went and spoke with my uh, squad leader and then I did my counseling. And the first thing he told me was, hey, check it out. Don't unpack your duffel bag because in two months, September, we're going to Iraq. And I thought he was messing with me. I was like, dude, you've been hanging out with my drill socks? Like, no, that's not how this works. Sure enough, September of 2003, I was, you know, um, I went to Kansas City, got on the plane, and I was flying to Kuwait to go to Iraq. So good times. Um, any sort of mental reservations about the idea of combat? I mean, again, you mentioned that they mess with you, but you seem to be pretty uh, well above the idea of being messed with. But when it, when you found out it was real, what did you, what was your mindset? What were you thinking? Um, so I didn't really it didn't bother me because I knew what I was signing up for. Like I I know. We were in Afghanistan due to 9-11, and I knew that Iraq was kicking off. So I I knew it was coming, um, and it, it's just something that I've never really feared or, or thought about. I just, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just growing up in Haiti and seeing, you know, uh, you know, death or growing up in New York City and, and witnessing, you know, just how, uh, you know, s- some of the neighborhoods were. But combat itself is never something that I was afraid of or, I don't know, like that, that never really bothered me as far as combat. Like I've never been one to be afraid of it. Um, I'm, I've always been in the mindset of, hey, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Um, I don't have any control over that, but uh, the least I can do is perform at my highest. And when I do go, at least I'll go out like a warrior, you know? So right. that's always been my mindset. Where did you end up in Iraq when you got there? So 2003, we ended up in a small town called Chaldea, which was, I want to say, it's about 30 minutes from Fallujah. Um, and about 15 minutes, no, so 30 minutes from Romani. Fallujah was right up the road uh, uh, from us. Okay. Did you know what your mission was? I mean, at that time, Fallujah wasn't as bad as it was in 04, 05, but... Um, 
what was your mission when you get there? So, of course, at this point, I'm a you know private. I'm just six months into the military. I didn't know anything about anything. I was just there, you know, um, just happy to be a part of it. But uh, our mission was route clearance, which the the concept was 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 fairly new. Um, so it was route clearance and also pulling guard on all the ASPs uh, that were downrange, all the AHA points, right, um, where all the Iraqis kept their ammo. Because uh, as soon as we started to roll into Iraq, uh, the National Guard and all their soldiers just abandoned their posts. So uh, they had this big um, storage areas, like it was literally like just in the desert where they built like this big um, ammunition point. They just like abandoned it to where um, a lot of the terrorists that were around in that that were running around in that country would just go to these uh, uh, supply points and just grab IED making materials and go set up IEDs out in town. So uh, my uh, company was tasked with also pulling guard on that supply point as well as conducting rock clearance uh, for all the uh, uh, convoys that were going through uh, to other locations. Um, you know, what was the operational tempo like for you? I mean, you know, were you guys out on the roads every day? I mean, things are, it's weird because, you know, once the mission accomplished happened, right? Like, you know, two or three months into Iraq, you know, I remember it was like May or whatever it was, that banner came up. I mean, we're sort of in this holding pattern. Everything's fairly quiet. Um, you know, the real insurgency hasn't swarmed back up yet. So what's it like day to day? So day to day, like we had a a rhythm that we kept. So we had uh, within the company, we had three platoons. So we had a platoon over at the uh, AHA point that would guard back. We had a platoon conducting rock clearance. And then we had a small OP in town uh, overlooking a bridge that was critical for uh, coalition forces to go over. So we had a platoon over there uh, pulling guard on that and we would just rotate. Right. So we always um, had something going on. And then uh, the IED threat started getting more and more real. And we had uh, multiple platoons patrolling different areas. So uh, from from what I can recall, man, like we stayed pretty busy. Um, like when we weren't out, we were back sleeping and refitting our equipment for the uh, 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 next um, rotation. Essentially. Right. But. We stayed pretty busy. I don't know if it's because there weren't a lot of guys out there that were doing rock clearance or pulling guards, because we also had uh, infantry out there. We had the 134 armor, but those guys were also pretty active in town. Like that area, like guys were, like we, 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 we were actually getting in a lot of firefights. Um, so, like, because of course, this is the beginning of the war, so there was no infrastructure. Uh, so we were sleeping outside we can hear all the fights that were going on in town uh but that that initial rotation was actually pretty uh busy uh from what i can recall when do you guys or does actual combat ever happen for you here on this first deployment so that's been several different um occasions at least for me um combat for for me didn't come in the form of a um, I'm getting shot at, uh, letting me return fire. But as a uh, 
combat engineer conducting rock clearance, uh, combat came in the form of uh, getting blown up, right? That was, uh, you know, my, um, my experience, at, at least in Iraq. Um, and I remember vividly, we were, it was our turn to conduct rock clearance uh, for a uh, big convoy that was coming through to deliver fuel. Because again, at this point, we didn't have anything set up. Like you would have, like supply would have to come from Kuwait and literally drive to all uh, these areas within uh, uh, Iraq. So we had to clear this route to uh, 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 get a convoy through. And we had these old vehicles, um, track vehicles. Because at this point, we didn't have the RG-31s. We didn't have the Buffaloes. Like, we didn't have anything up on it at this point. It was just whatever vehicles we had at Fort Riley, Kansas. That's what we, we took down range. Uh, so at this point, we're rolling in, like, these, these old, uh, you know, vehicles that we filled up sandbags and kind of put on the floor as if that was going to keep the uh, blast from actually reaching us. So we try to, you know, build up as, as, as much as we can and we're out on this particular day conducting rock clearance. And I remember this vividly because I was the I was the uh, second, I was the second vehicle in the convoy. It was a four-man convoy. And we're clearing this route. Um and I was the rear gunner uh standing outside the troop with my 249 looking towards the rear. And I saw this big explosion, right? It was just dirt everywhere. And it's weird because for as big as this ID was, I didn't hear it. I just saw it. I don't know if it was because I was too close to it. Like, till this day, I, I, I can't really answer that question as for like, man, why didn't you hear that bungle? But anyways, I'm looking towards the rear and I just see this big cloud of dirt. Um, and so everybody stops. And when the smoke cleared, like I can see one of the, vehicles um, off to the side, right? Like it went off the uh, actual dirt path that we were on and it's kind of came on, on the side. So I'm like, man, like, okay. So they they try to hit us, but they miss, right? So they, um, well, okay. And again, this is a four vehicle uh, convoy. I'm looking back, I'm like, okay, well, vehicle one is in front of me. I'm vehicle two. This must be vehicle three and vehicle four must be behind that one. Um, and I just happened to look up and I just saw this big block of, uh, of, of uh, a metal, you know, falling towards us. So at this point, the TC sees it and kicks the driver in the head and we move just in time for the engine block to land right where the true patch was. And I'm looking around like, holy shit, that's, so if that's the engine, then where's the rest of the vehicle, right? Come to find out 600 pounds, um, had hit vehicle three and completely destroyed uh, the vehicle itself, right? So once that happened, uh, you know, we practiced these drills as far as, hey, react to IED, react to ambush, react to, like, we practiced all these drills on the regular. Um, and it was just automatic, like, we just snapped to it. We didn't have time to process what just happened. So we went into reactive mode, we set up our cordon, um, and then, you know, we started to do what we call um, man weapons and equipment, right? So we checked ourselves, we we checked our weapon system, we check all the equipment, trying to figure out, hey, like what's going on, right? And once uh, the dust settled and everybody got their stuff together, we found out like that entire vehicle was destroyed with the six dudes that were in it. The biggest part was 
uh, you know, a, a, a dude's uh, a, a, a body, right? Everybody else was completely gone and in pieces. So that was my first experience uh, with combat itself. Again, it's not, for me, it wasn't, you know, getting shot at and shoot back, but more like, you know, getting blown up. And that would set the stage for the rest of the deployment because um, it just got better and better at creating IEDs. And that entire deployment, it was just us looking for the IEDs and the ones that we didn't find, we got blown up with. I mean, what are you thinking and feeling when you recognize that six of your, your fellow soldiers are just disintegrated? Uh <laughs> I think we all, because again, like this, at this point, like some of the guys that were in the platoon, I was just in basic training and AIT with, right? So we were all brand new young kids that, like, we didn't know what to expect. So I think it took us about a day or so before we started to uh, 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 come to conclusions as, as to what just took place. So for the first day, if not, you know, 48 hours, it was just complete numbness and just, um, like, we couldn't believe what what had just happened. Um, so it took us about 48 hours, because um, that's how long they stood us down for, because, again, it, it was a crucial mission, because supply has to keep going in. So within that 48 hours, it was disbelief, shock, and just, dudes are just pissed off, right? Um, and till this day, I don't think you know, some of the guys ever got over it uh, because till this day, I'll talk to some of the dudes and some of them are still trapped back, you know, in Iraq, you know, re, re- reliving that, that specific incident. Um, for me, it was just uh, just anger and then hatred uh, towards the Iraqis, to be honest with you. Um, and it just kind of continued for the rest of the deployment. Um. I, I mean, when you look back on it, do you wish that you had shared some of your feelings with whether it's your your team sergeant, your squad leader, your, you know, platoon sergeant or anything? I mean, did you just kind of keep quiet? Yeah, so we all kept quiet because, um, again, at this point, there was no, like, yes, there was a chaplain there, but he didn't even really know how to deal with that himself, right? Um, squad leader, platoon song, like they were, you know, busy with figuring out how to keep everyone else from getting blown up, from dying. Right? They, they, they had their own things on their plate that they had to worry about. So we, as soldiers, kind of banded together uh, within the platoon and we just kind of find, like, we, we found activities to keep our minds from wandering down that rabbit hole. Um, and we just kind of kept each other busy and kept each other entertained. Uh, while we were down range, and then once we got stateside, shit just got out of hand with dudes getting in the fight, dudes getting kicked out, dudes getting in trouble. Because um, again, mental health wasn't a thing back then, right? This is 2003. <laughs> we didn't even know what PTSD or any of that stuff was, not to the level that it is right now. So we were essentially the first casualties that, you know, dudes till this day, like I mentioned, or probably still back then, because they never got the help that they needed. For me specifically, once I got back, I started going down that that rabbit hole of getting myself in trouble, getting locked up. Um, and then once I realized what was going on, I quickly went and got help from a professional, and that's how I was able to savage my career. Oh, wow. That's impressive that at that young yeah. of an age, you kind of 
had the wherewithal to, to, to recognize that the path you were leading only ended one way and, and, and yeah. you heard from it. I, I'll get back to that in a moment. I just kind of wanted to, you mentioned about the rest of the deployment. I mean, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're constantly searching for IDs and, and, and constantly rolling over them and getting hit by them, um, is there a part of your mind that thinks, well, one, uh, I'm going to die here. And then two, like, um, maybe this was a bad decision. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I, maybe I should have just stayed, went back and stayed in college or something. Yeah, so it's weird because at no point in time did I ever did that thought ever cross my mind. Like it was always, hey, I'm here and I'm gonna see it through. And if I die here, then it's my time to go, right? And if I go, I'll go with my brothers or I'll go doing something that I like to do. But at no point in time did I did it ever cross my mind, like, hey, um, I made a bad decision because I'm off the mindset of, hey, it's it's not going to change anything. I'm, I'm still going to be right no. here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, but still, I, you know, it, it's impressive that as a 20 year old kid, you have the wherewithal to sort of come to grips with your own mortality. A lot of 20 year olds don't have that. Yeah. I mean, my first deployment, I was 25, 26. Even at then, it was, it was tough to come to grips with your own mortality. I mean, you have to at some point or you won't survive, right? You'll drive yourself crazy. But, you know, um, usually the younger folks have a harder time dealing with that. People with more life experience understand that. Yeah. You, know, you live to die, so to speak, as morbid as that sounds. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I think another factor that really helped me out was the guys that I was down there with. Right. Like, because after that first incident, we kind of bonded even closer than we were before. And we slowly started to realize that, hey, like, I need to do everything that I can do to make sure, you know, private such and such gets back to his family. Or, you know, sort of such and such gets back to his wife. Like, so we started really uh, 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 practicing, like, personal accountability as far as, hey, it's my job to scan this sector. I'm going to scan it to the best of my ability. Uh, and we start, hey, it's my job to EMCS this vehicle. Let me do it to the best of my ability. So, if anything, that first incident brought us closer as a platoon, as a squad. And we really started to execute and finding a lot of these IEDs before it actually got to us. Um, right. When you get back from that deployment, I know you said you had started going down a bad path as far as trouble is concerned, but um, is there a sense of relief and did you think you'd be going back? Yeah, so once we got back, um, there was a sense of release because once well, once we left um, Iraq and we got to Kuwait, it was like, holy crap, like I made it out of this. You know what I mean? And once I got back to the States, it was, yeah, um, I'm never going to do this again. I'm done. You know what I mean? Um, but again, the Lord had different, you know, plans and somehow yeah. the Lord and the United States government. So yeah. both of them together had different plans. Yeah. <laughs> um, good times. Yeah. But to end up back there again, um, you know, within your first five years in 07 and 08, correct? Yeah. So, um, so in 2004, that, that trip ended. We got back. Um, at this point, again, going down a ro- like the wrong path. I got my stuff together. Um, became a pretty decent soldier. Started getting promoted. Um, I like how you, you said it was just a pretty decent soldier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, within four years, um, I made E6. Uh, gotten married. So uh, at this point. Um, we got word that we're going back to Iraq, um, and it's doing the same thing that I had just done. 
But at this point, we're a little bit more advanced. We have the RG31s. We have the Buffaloes. Like we, we have a, a bunch of technology that, that has made rock clearance a lot easier, uh, for the engineers that were doing. Uh, so I thought it was going to be, um, a tad bit different. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go with them. Um, and that, that trip was, was decent. Uh, but we still went through, uh, similar outcome with losing dudes, uh, left and right to IEDs. When you see it happen the second time, um, where you lose some of your, 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 your teammates, is there a, how did you react? Is there a sense of numbness to it or do you even get more emotional about it? Yeah. So at this point I was just pretty numb about it because that first trip, we lost some more dudes down the road um, within the, the, the company. So how many total in the first trip did you lose? So the first trip we lost. So six from my platoon alone. From the company, we lost the first sergeant, the company commander, the supply guy. Whoa. Yeah. Um, command team got blown up. Um, so I want to say it was 10 or 15 the first trip um, that I knew of. Um, so, and we were the first ones. My platoon was the first ones. So after the first one, I just figured out and I kind of just numb it out and just accept it as uh just a part of this business, right? It's like being in real estate. The part of the business is you're gonna have evictions, right? Um so I started to adapt the similar mindset of hey, I'm in the military, we're at war. Uh the blowback from this is gonna be that people are going to die, right? And I train my mind to accept that concept. And that's what kept me going forward to the second deployment when we did lose folks. And at this point, I'm in a leadership role. So I was the one talking to those privates, to those specialists and keeping them um, like on a straight path to not deviate and, you know, keep pushing forward. Uh, so by the second deployment, I was numb to it. I still went through the motions of, you know, talking to the guys, going to the, you know, funeral services. But Oh, seven, oh, eight, man. It was EFPs became a thing and guys were just covert bombs. Like we were in a really bad place in 0708. Guys were dying left and right. Uh, wherever, um, cause my, my second one, I, I was in the spiker right outside of Tukri. So guys were dying left and right over there. And I just became numb to it, to be honest with you. When you look back on it, do you wish you were less numb to it? Uh, no, no, because if I was, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know what I mean? like I, why, yeah. why do you feel that way? So within this profession, because again, like you and I both know that this field or this, this profession is not made for anyone, right? You, it takes a special breed of men to join the military and to confront evil and and stare at it and, you know, push back, right? Not, not everybody could do that. And, uh, the guys that weren't able to do that, like they, they didn't make it far, right? They got out, they got back, they got out and they never really made anything out of themselves because war essentially defeated them, even though they were still alive, right? They, uh, they stayed, I guess, in the past of, man, what if I had done this? Such and such would have been alive. What if I had done that? Such and such would have been alive. 
as opposed to me, like once I accepted the fact that, hey, this is war, it's going to happen. It's no fault of my own. There's nothing I can do about it. The best thing that I can do is keep living my life and keep celebrating the bills that have come before me that have passed. Like once I found a way to, you know, wrap that concept up and started to adapt it, like I found myself uh, uh, being more and more fearless, right? As opposed to if I was dwelling in the past, if I let that, you know, specific incident eat me up, like Lord knows where I would be right now, right? It's it's not made for everybody, uh, but the folks that it's made for, like they recognize it when they see it and they know how to manage those uh uh, a situation once they're faced with it, right? They know, hey, right now I need to be strong for my jobs, right? So I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to make sure they get what they want. And then on my off, on my off time, like, I can sit and I can have a moment of, oh, man, this sucks. You know, like, I wish this didn't happen, but check it out. Again, I'm a realist. I understand the war. This is the price that we sometimes have to pay, right? And I think that very first deployment taught me that, and I never really looked back. I mean, it's interesting you say that. I, I, well, I agree. Look, our line of work isn't for everybody, right? Um, and it's not supposed to be. And that's fine. Um, you know, in that same mindset, you say with such conviction that, you know, uh, the people who are cut out for what we do um, have, a, have a certain mindset to do what we do. However, I would anecdotally say, at least for me, to a certain extent, I didn't really know my capability, my capability for this line of work until I was actually tested with it. Um, and, and, you know, you seem to portray, at least what I'm picking up from you, that you never really doubted your capability to handle what was in front of us. Um, I, you know, I just being honest, I, I didn't know that I had the guts to do what I did until I did what I did. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I, I didn't know if I was going to duck in a ball when the first bullets were flying. I didn't know if I was going to do the right thing. I mean, look, I prayed about it routinely yeah. every time before I went outside. That's all I prayed for. Just let me do the right thing. That's it. Let me think about others before myself. Let me do what I'm trained to do. Um, don't let me hesitate. You know, like those little things that matter in the in the milliseconds where things start going wrong. But I didn't know that until I did it. So, um, yeah, it's not for everybody, but you know, many are called, few are chosen, I suppose, or many try and many fail, I, however you want to phrase it. But I just, I thought it was interesting that you said that because you said it with such, such conviction. And I thought, well, I didn't know that when I got in. I don't know any of that crap. I'm a <laughs> bullshit. Like, I, I'm, I, I read my- You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're still listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Don't worry about it. Um, but my point is, like, you know, I, again, I didn't, I had no idea what I was capable of until I went through it. Uh, you know, that crucible that you cross, you don't figure it out until you get to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree a hundred percent. But again, like for me, at least I think once I accepted, and I'm not a religious dude, I just, it was just one of those things like, Hey, I know for a fact that I'm going to die one day. And whenever I do die, there's, I can't do anything about it, right? I can literally go in this deployment, spend, you know, 12 months downrange getting blown up, getting shot at, come back to the States, you know, and I'm on a motorcycle and I get hit and I'm done, right? Like, I can't I, control when I'm going to go. 
So I like, thought about that religiously. When I got back to my first deployment, I go, watch me get railed in a car accident. <laughs> like, I was so paranoid. That's what was going to happen. I survived 12 months of shit. And then I'm going to come back and fall off a bike and smash my yeah. face. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought about that. But but again, you know, that's, that's, that's part of it, I guess, to a certain extent. Like, you know, um, and even now, th- there's a part of me that has always felt I at least would have rather I would would have rather to a certain extent die in combat where I had less control, even though I felt like I had more control certain times where I had less control of the outcome of anything than I do in regular life. Like I'm almost more paranoid in regular life than I ever was in combat because, you know, nothing bad is theoretically supposed to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I go to a restaurant, every time I go to the mall, every time I go shopping, I'm like, just like, you know, I'm I'm waiting for the next bad thing to happen. (laughs) Well, that's why you got to carry everywhere you go, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, listen, it's a, it's a, a, a very, very uh, a prickly conversation to have in America. Yeah. <laughs> Keep moving forward. Right, yeah, so. I know the feeling. I know yeah. the feeling because I've had buddies, again, um, that's gone through deployments, several deployments, uh, just to come back home and die on a motorcycle, just to come back home and then die in a fire. So I've seen that happen multiple times, and I just keep reverting back to that same um, experience that I had my very first one, and it's like, hey, things like this are going to happen. You know, when you know when it's your time to go, you're going to go, and there's nothing anybody can really do about it. And that's what's kept me on this uh, path for so long, and that's what's helped me get over losing teammates. Yeah, it still sucks, um, but that that's what's truly helped me out uh, in the long run. So after the second appointment, you get back. Um, how and when and why and where did you learn about Green Berets and how do you end up there? Because that's what's next, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got back from the uh, second one. And at this point, um, I've had enough of rock clinics. I was like, man, forget yeah, this. Yeah. Like, there's got to be more out there. Like, I'm tired of sitting in a, you know, vehicle going, you know, eight hours, um, you know, out of, you know, out of my entire day, eight hours of it, I'm on the road driving and looking for IDs and hoping that I don't get blown up. Um, it was just so reactive. There was nothing uh, proactive about it. You know, I couldn't take it to the enemy. I was just baked, right? So after the second one, I got tired of it. Uh, me and a small group of buddies, we started looking at options. Uh, there was a couple of guys that were talking about going towards Ranger Bad. I had a squad leader. Um, he was looking at going to selection. And at this point, I didn't know what any of this was. So I picked his mind. I was like, hey, like, what is this selection thing? He broke it down for me. He went, um, didn't get picked up. And then I went after him and I got picked up. Um, and that's that's where it all started for me as sports acceptance. What was the hardest part of selection for you? Um, I would say Lynn Nav. Lynn Nav was the hardest part. You didn't want sport. that roadkill, did you? No, no, I didn't want it at all. <laughs> but, like, we both know, like, growing up in New York City, like, the, there, there is no navigating anywhere. I just get on the subway, I get on the bus, you know. So I didn't grow up uh, doing land nav. And even when I was a Fort Riley, Kansas, I was mechanized. Like, I didn't do any land nav there either. So right. leading up to selection, um, working with my selection cadre, I got a little bit of land nav in, but it didn't prepare me from, for what I was going to face at selection. So it was uh, once I got to, to a selection, I was just learning um, on the fly, essentially, on, on, as far as how to conduct like that. Well, for those who are not familiar with New York City, streets go east and west, the avenues go north and south. There you go. Yep. Like, <laughs> That's it. Other than that, everything else is a rectangle. Go figure it yep. out. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, Alain Navis is kill. I mean, it's, you know, um, and for those who aren't familiar, and I don't know if it was like this when you went through, but my, my SF friends who I deployed with told me, you know, you get blindfolded, put on a chopper somewhere, they drop you down and say, see you in a couple hours, get back home. Yeah. Man. Can't go within 50 meters of a road, and that's it. Figure it out. Yep. Figure out where you are and how to get home. Yep. Yep. That's uh, pretty accurate. And a camel pack, and that's about it. Yep. <laughs> Those that don't make it, once time is up, they, they, they snatch them up, and then you never see them again. Yeah. So, so yeah, selection itself was uh, was a beast, but Lynn, that was my most challenging one. Everything else kind of fell in place. Let me ask you, just from the teammate mentality, because, you know, again, that's that's a huge component of – becoming a green beret right um there's a certain uh amount of how you view teammates and how you operate in a team that is more important whether you could be you could be the best individual land guy land nav guy there is but that's got to fit somewhere in the rest of your team in order for it to be effective as a skill so how hard was that for you to learn uh so as far as being a good teammate like i've i've always been I guess a decent teammate because I always tell myself, yeah. "Hey, as long yeah, as I decent. Treat- just decent." <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> Keep selling yourself short here, okay? Yeah, because I always tell myself that, "Hey, as long as I treat others like I want to be treated, like they'll do the same for me." Uh, and I've always been a helpful person, so if I'm done doing whatever I'm doing, then I try to help others. Um, and as 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 long as I was doing that, like everything kind of worked out, right? Um, because of course, like you mentioned, the team is just is such a big thing within SF that it, some some guys know how to be good teammates, right? The ones that aren't selfish, um, that aren't all about themselves, and the ones that are, you normally pick up on it right away at selection, and those guys typically don't make it past selection, right? Because week three, they put everyone together and you have to act like a team and help each other out and, you know, make up for the weaknesses of the other dudes. Um, and that's what's going to get you through it. So I, like, once I got to week three, I was within my elements because I've always been one of those dudes that's like, hey, like, what, like, how can I help you? What do you need? Right? I was always like a um, servant leader, essentially, right? Always trying to look out for others uh, once I was done with all my stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's always been easy, I guess. What was your what was your specialty on, on the team? What was what was your eighteen series? Uh, so I was eighteen Charlie, right? So eighteen Charlie is just the combat engineers version of special forces. I was oh, yeah, there, there was there was no pivoting for you. <laughs> no, no, no. Because um, at this point, I'm not actually going to get to do demo, so I just stuck with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, when you get to your team, you go into third group, and the, for those who civilians listening and those who don't know each special forces group is assigned an area of operations in the world third group is africa um you know it's interesting um did you think when you got to group uh that you would end up redeploying back into the middle east again because it's not your area of operations well so at this point um third group of course being one of the combat groups uh so third and fifth we're known as the combat groups right because we're always chasing that dot so at this point third group we gave up africa to 10th group so we're like hey 10th group check it out uh you guys take africa um we're taking afghanistan so we switch our entire ao just so we can focus on afghanistan so by the time i got to third group in 2010 
we were mainly focused on just Afghanistan. So when I got there, and I spent 15 years there, I've, I've never been out. <laughs> I've, I've been solely in the Middle East. And we recently, um, I want to say after I retired, or right before I retired, we took Africa back because yeah. stuff was throwing a pop off over there. But yeah, we're one of those groups where like, oh, oh, there's a fight in the Philippines? Hey, first group, uh, how about you take Africa and we'll take uh, the Philippines, right? So we're always chasing that die. Well, yeah, never been to Africa. This is strictly, strictly Afghanistan once I got the... Uh, That's crazy. How quickly yeah. do you get to Afghanistan? Um, so so, do you smaller workup deployments before going to Afghanistan? Yeah, so when I got to third group, the battalion that I was going to was already downrange. Okay. So I got to third group in uh, February of 2010. Three months later, I was um, down in Balcom. Uh, working at the CJ Soda. Uh, I worked there for about four months, and then I went down to Kandahar to link up with, with, with my first team down there. Um, you're getting there at a very interesting time in 2010 yeah. and 2011 because re- that's when – look, I mean, I recall distinctly when I was on my first deployment in 05 to 06, you know, I'd walk into the operations center um, and – you know, TVs would be on and everything else. And I remember seeing, like, kept asking, what the hell's going on? Nothing's going on in Afghanistan. Why am I? I'd rather be there. Like, I have a much better chance of survival just sitting in the freaking barren woods of, of and mountains of Afghanistan than I do driving around Baghdad uh, five days a week. Um, but yet, when you get to 2010, 2011, that's when sort of the insurgency started to really pick back up. Um, yeah. so, but, I mean, obviously, look, you know, at, at this point in time, you know, the Green Berets sort of, shifted a little bit more from FID to direct action, right? Um, I don't know how third group did it, but there was certainly a pivot for the most part um, where direct action started to take more of the the time and, and targeting and everything else um, than FID did per se. But what were, you, what were you guys handling when you got there to Kandahar? Yeah, so I got to uh, Kandahar towards the end of 2010. So it was November is 2010. Um, and at this point, McChrystal, I think, was who was in charge of Afghanistan. And he, he started going towards this coin, the, the yeah. counterinsurgency. Yay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good time. So ton of 06s and one stars who got like all medals for coming up with the term coin. Yeah. <laughs> Which nobody so has any idea what it means, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, so well, this, they know what it means. They just don't know how to do it because there's no way to, you know, but anyway. It, exactly. Exactly. So we started. Uh, so uh, third group was actually the first, I guess, group to start this new concept uh, that McChrystal came up with. And it was uh, VSO, Village Stability Operation. Right. So that's when they would take a SFODA and they would just embed us in a town. It was like, hey, ODA such and such, I'm going to put you in Maywan. Like, you will live in that village. You will eat with the locals. You will recruit your, you know, um, your Afghan local police. You'll have a uh, national, well, a, um, Afghan SF team with you. And you won't be around any big army installations, right? It'll just be. Like a true SF mission. It's like, hey, you will go live in this village. 
So I got there um, and I went and I lived in that village, right? We spent uh, 10 months in Maywan where uh, we had three different phases. We had a build-up phase, we had a train-up phase, and we had an operational phase. The build-up phase is, hey, um, local uh, elder, like the village elder, can I live in this compound over here that's completely destroyed? You know, can I live there and I will pay you rent, right? So we took over a little mud hut and we essentially built it into like a mini fob where the ODAs and all the enablers would live. So for 10 months, uh, we built this thing and turned it into a fancy fob. Uh, once that was up within three months, we had that up and running. We went to the village. We recruited a local police, small militia, essentially, right? So we went to the local uh, uh, village elder, and we're like, hey, we know this area is a hotbed for Taliban. Like, can we speak to some of your fighting age males, right? And then they gave us a bunch of dudes. We, as an ODA, trained them up. Um, and then once we were operational, we started patrolling that area with those Afghan local police that we trained along with the ANSF, the Afghan National, uh, the Afghan Special Forces guys, right? And that was the first deployment. Um, and you figure we were doing that all throughout Afghanistan. And that was the new strategy that was being employed um, at that uh, point in time. Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, it's all veiled in fit, right? As soon as they embed you, that's that's foreign internal defense right there. But then yeah. everything pivots and shifts. And I don't, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not chiding any of the decisions that were made from that standpoint. You know, uh, it's just you know, doctrine and reality. Oh, the, the gap seems to grow wider. Uh, yeah. the, longer, yeah. the longer in combat you stay, because everything's constantly shifting. Nothing is static, as it, to a certain extent, as it should be, right? I mean, um, and we've rewritten doctrine a dozen times over through combat, just because. We learned more than than we knew when we went in, so that's fair. So I just didn't want to make it sound like I was taking a dump on uh, on oh, no, McChrystal or anything. It's just you know I've lived it, so I understand how it went um, in my time in Iraq with uh, with Fifth and Tenth Group. So no. um, you know when you get to this level, you know, and now you're getting this experience here of a different level of combat. Um, did was there anything about what you did in First ID? from a combat standpoint, was any of it relatable to what you were doing now in Afghanistan? Yeah, so this was a different uh, perspective as far as combat goes, right? Because like I mentioned earlier, my time in, you know, being Army was very uh, reactive, meaning, you know, like I would, I was essentially bait, right? I would go down the road until something happens, and then I would react, right? That normally came in the form of a battle drill, right? That's why it's react to ID, right? I'm not actively looking for the ID, as opposed to once I got to SF, it was more like, all right, now I'm hunting. Like, once we are operational, like, I am no shit going out every day. I'm patrolling. I am hunting the enemy. I'm keeping them on their toes as opposed to them, you know, keeping us on our toes whenever I was conducting our plan. So it was a night and day shift, man, and I loved it because at this point, um, as a new guy, yes, I had ID experience, so I knew uh, the basic stuff when it came to that. So I'm like, hey, if I was the bad guy, you know, I would put an ID here, right? So what we would do is we would take our Afghan local police. We'd be like, hey, man, like, I train you on this. I want you to go hang out right here. And then if you see anybody doing something that they shouldn't be doing, roll them up, right? So we started import, like, so using my experience from first ID, I started to employ 
the uh, knowledge that I had with the Afghans that I was training. And we had a lot of success there too, because we were like, hey, we I know what to look for as if I was gonna do it. Let me relate it to this dude. And sure enough, it was, it was like clockwork, right? We were snatching dudes up left and right that were trying to in place IEDs to try to blow us up. Um, so that's the IED front of it. And of course, every time we go out, they'd be like, hey, these Americans are out here by themselves. Like, let's go pick a fight with them. Uh, within the first, you know, probably three or four weeks, they quickly learn, like, hey, these aren't normal Americans. Like, let's not mess with them, right? Um, and then the rest of the trip was, you know, just us hunting them and keeping them on their toes. Um, when you actually get into combat there, uh, and it's, again, it's not on the road, it's more on foot or, you know, uh, again, direct action. Um, did you feel like, for lack of a better way to phrase it, you were up to the task? I mean, obviously the, the training has become different this whole time, you know, everything is different. Um, but still there, was there any sense in the back of your head? Like, Hey, hey I wonder how I'm going to respond to this. No, no, I was, uh. I was ready, man. I think I'm just one of those uh, war junkies. But I was like, uh, once I first got there, it's weird for SF guys, right? Because once you get to a team, you just went through a year-long pipeline uh, just to get to this point. So you're there and you're like, okay, like, let's, like, this is what I signed up to do. Like, where is it? You know what I mean? And we would go on patrols looking for it. You know, and once it happened, you're like, yes, it was so awesome. You know, I want more. It's just that adrenaline rush that you get from, you know, going against another human being and, uh, you know, the ultimate, you know, uh, battle or the ultimate game, I guess you could call it. Uh, but, yeah, once I got there, um, I was looking for it. I was looking forward to it. And once it happened, uh, it was pretty awesome. Uh, and, and, yeah, I was, I was ready for it because, again, once I got to the team, we had additional training on top of what I got in, from the Q course. So it was all like training us to get to that point where we, we were going head to head with uh, the enemy. For someone who had the wherewithal at such a young age to understand their own mortality in combat, um, the, the flip side of that is taking another life in combat that uh, still, you know, again, is <laughs> it's something you have to reconcile whether you would like to acknowledge it or not. Uh, but I wonder how that sort of sat with you is now you're, you're again in a different position with direct action and, and finding and seeking and destroying the enemy. Yeah. So, um, I, I kept going back to 9-11. Again, that was my initial motivator was 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. And I was in Afghanistan where, you know, the folks that did this to New York City, you know, planned it out of that, you know, uh, country. And they were hiding out in that country and some of them were responsible. So it was always like, hey, um, I'm going to do this for, you know, the New Yorkers. And if I die while doing it, it is what it is. But my intent was to make somebody else pay for what they did, right? Like, I don't want to die. I want to make the other guy die. And, and I have the training. Uh, I have the assets and I'm, I'm going to make it happen. So that was my mindset. Once I got to SF, my mindset completely changed of, hey, uh, these people hate us, right? At least the ones that were fighting. They hate us. They want to do harm to us. They have done harm to us. Now, this is uh, the hammer getting dropped on at the ultimate level, at the highest level, right? So that was my mindset at that point, Mike. 
I just out of curiosity, time frame wise, I know you said you got there at the end of 2011. How long did you stay? Was it a full seven months? No, nah, so this one was 10 months for me. Okay. So then you were in Afghanistan when bin Laden was caught. No, because oh. bin Laden. That was May of 2011. He didn't get killed until later on that year. So I, I left that deployment around February of 2011. Okay. I think bin Laden right. was later on that year. He was in May. I just said, I, I, I thought it, I misunderstood you saying you got there at the end of 2010. So, um, no, so I got to Kandahar towards the end of 2010, but I was a dad. Oh, in country, yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So then they set you back. Okay, got it now. Um, when you, I'm curious your thoughts on the conventional army and the way they conduct combat operations versus Green Berets and the way they do it. Look, it's different, right? Um, there's an argument to say one's better than the other, but I don't necessarily think that's what matters. I think the argument is, is how do they both complement each other in a way that achieves, you know, ultimate victory per se. But, um, the, the starkest contrast for you about the way Green Berets do it versus the way the conventional army does it is what? So when it comes to, um, how they did it and how we did it, I think it comes down to understanding the enemy. And, and, and how they operate, right? Um, in Afghanistan, essentially, they were a uh, guerrilla unit, right? Like they'll hit you and they'll disappear and into this mountain. Like I'm, I'm still a big fan of how we initially went in in 2001 with the small teams, with air, like we, you know, uh, 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 you know, we pressure, we punish. Um, and that was it. Like we literally found them, we dropped bombs on them, and that was it. Like I truly think that the war should have ended in 2001. Like, like we literally had Bin Laden on the road. He went into Pakistan. That should have been it. Yeah. Right? There, there should have been no other reason. Like 20 years later, like we had him. Like it was a unconventional uh a fight, and it should have stayed an unconventional fight, right? Because when you take a big element such as the United States Army and all the coalition forces, and you insert them into a unconventional battle. Now the Taliban is using unconventional tactics, the hit and runs, right? The IEDs, like, and all it did was, you know, um, led us to losing a bunch of lives that didn't necessarily have to be lost, right? So it wasn't a conventional fight. Uh, it should have stayed a, you know, soft driven, uh, uh, a uh, 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 war, and I think if we had kept it like that, like we we would have been in a lot better place than we are now. Um, yeah. So I guess to answer your question, um, it should have stayed soft heavy because it was an unconventional battle. Uh, right. The big army just added more opportunities for the enemy to actually uh, claim you no know, success. Right, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, it does. Uh, leadership, right? Um, but, you know, uh, and strategic leadership is is important. But again, a much different conversation um, that would take us a much longer podcast. <laughs> I do want to ask you, though, just on your thoughts about, you know, staying conventional, because, uh, you know, you did end up going to the Special Warfare Center in school um, yeah. and becoming an instructor there and downloading all this information. Uh, and I say all that in, in the context of, you know, um, when you 
when you enter into an unconventional warfare, you guys are the best at what you do. Um, but in the same respect, it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't know if it's sustainable because the small units will eventually burn out. There's just not enough of them. And so to that aspect, um, the, the view of soft and the view of green berets and special forces in general, even including Navy SEALs and, and, you know, uh, uh, PJs in the Air Force and whatnot, combat controllers, all those guys who who do the best of the best. Um, what was cloaked before is now out in the open. Um, and I am somebody who still kind of firmly believes that things are better off when we didn't know what Green... I, I would have signed up for Special Forces, at least tried to do it, had I had known it existed at the early part of my military career. I didn't know it. I, I, didn't, know what it, I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't watch John Wayne. I didn't watch Platoon. I didn't watch any of those movies growing up. I had no idea what the hell they were. No clue. So um, the level of what you guys do is super important, but the the ability to do it um, sort of in secrecy matters. And I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, I'm not advocating that you guys get to be cowboys, do whatever the hell you want, and no one should be any the wiser. No, there's still a certain level of, for lack of a better term, etiquette, that we have to execute in the way we conduct ourselves as an American, as Americans and American soldiers. But all that, again, um, this long winded question gets me to uh, now that you're out uh, and you see what, you know, special forces has become, is it better, worse, or, or just different than when it was when you first got in there and there was a little bit more sense of like, shh, we don't talk about what these guys do that much. Um, so I think it's gotten I think it's gotten worse on the leadership level, right? And that is more of a, you know, big army, like, society problem. Because I always tell some of these guys that I mentor that the military is just a microcosm of society, right? You got oh, shitty leaders over here, you're going to have shitty leaders in the military. And that within itself has truly uh, destroyed uh, our military to an extent, right? Because I'm still around the Fort Bragg so I still see soldiers on the regular. And they, they just look defeated. And it's just that concept of guys not being taken care of, uh, guys are pissed off, and essentially no one wants to serve anymore, right? So that's the first um, part of it. And then as far as uh, soft and, you know, being hush-hush, and so that I, I'm not a big fan of, so I'm I'm not a big fan of the writing books and the making movies like that. I can't stand right, like because that's not why we do it. We don't do it for the glory. Uh, so that I don't agree with. But as far as the educational aspect of it, I do believe in that. Like you mentioned, if you knew about this, you probably would have done it early on in your life. If I knew about it, I probably would have went a lot earlier. Uh, so I do uh, believe that you know, as ex soft operators, it's our job to educate the next generation. And where exactly is the next generation right now? Social media. So guess what? That's where we got to go. If we don't go there and educate them, guess what, man? It's it's going to be, you know, my son joining because he knows that dad was a green beret, right? That's that's who's going to keep serving all these legacy kids. And the information will never reach the actual population because we're not out here recruiting, essentially, for our regiment, right? So um, I do think that in this day and age, social media is where it's at, right? So your podcasts, your 
you know, whatever, just to show the youth that, hey, Green Berets, Seals, more socks, CCTs, like, hey, we're a thing, right? Like, come, you know, join us. Ask your questions, right? That's why you see channels like One Ready, right? That's a big Air Force channel. Then you got FNG Academy for uh, SF guys, right? Then you have all the Seals out there, right? The youth is going to see that and then they'll be like, oh, man, like, that'll be pretty cool. I'm going to go do it, right? Uh, but as far as the talking about the operations and writing the books and making the movies and trying to gain some fame from, you know, what you've done, that I'm not a big fan of. Uh, is that part of the reason you got out? Um, that it just Or you just hit the 20 and you said you were done? No, so I hit 20 um, and I wasn't operational, right? So within the group, uh, the the... The, the team sergeant, the master sergeant, uh, that's about the highest you can go in remaining operational, right? Yep. Um, once I came off my team and I was no longer running ODA, doing stuff with my hands, and I was uh, in the first sergeant job, which is all admin, like, that was it for me. Like, I, I couldn't handle all the admin stuff. Well, I could, I just didn't want to, right? I'm like, man, like. So if I make you nine, it's just going to be more of this. I'm like, no, I'm done. Once an operator, always an operator, right? Uh, exactly, you know. exactly. So I got out and then just wanted to do something else. You know what I mean? And and that's what I did. So, you know, it's interesting. And I just want to go back to what you're saying before about the leadership, right? Um, and, and this inevitably happens both in the regular army and even in the soft community to a certain extent, because, and, and I see it now, even, even me as an 06 now, it's, it's, you get so far removed from the ground level uh, and you get sucked up into strategic this and you get sucked up into, you know, bigger picture things that you can't give the proper attention to what it is. Um, and you just assume that it was the way that when I was, well, this is the way I did it. So, you know, we're still here and obviously I have to still have a complete understanding of what goes on, on the ground. level, And that's just not reality. Because the ground level now, we just talked about the, the younger generation. It's made up of completely different people. It, it's it's not, you know, this is not your daddy's army anymore. It's not your daddy's Green Berets anymore. Um, and to a certain extent, I'm not saying that's bad. There's there, Some of it could be good. I, I You know, you'd have to look on a case-by-case basis. But what happens is, is that that leadership, you know, there are guys who, it, it's unfortunately the guys like you who, still have that love and lust for operations that don't sit in the roles that make decisions about operators, right? You you end up becoming somebody different and end up bowing down to a different master, i.e. there's a one-star here, a two-star there, there's a strategic, a chief here, a strategic position, whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden it's, I lost the gumption to turn around and say, no, this is a bad idea. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to advocate for my people and we're not doing that. We don't say that. We just go, yes, okay, sure, whatever. And we let the shit roll downhill. And that's inevitably what happens because when you get to that level, there's two choices. You fight and get ostracized or you keep your mouth shut and you keep your job. That's essentially what happens. If you want to push back at that level, you're quickly going to be pushed out by everybody else because they don't want dissenting voices in the room. That's called groupthink. That's what's killing the military at the highest levels right now. That and politics invading the military. But yeah. it, I mean, and I found this out, didn't know this till a couple of years ago, till after I made 06, but uh, I was unaware of the fact, you know, how you get your second star there, Jay. All the other second stars decide if you get to have a second star. <laughs> you better get in line. <laughs> if you're the dissenting voice in the room, 
They yeah. all go, thank you. We appreciate your time, but, you know, see ya. Like, yeah. getting the one star is the only merit-based promotion you're going to get when you get to that level. Everything yeah. else is decided by your buddies. Yeah. And, and it's it, it's just not the way things should go. So, yeah. um, I think it was uh, General Bulldog wrote an article about, uh, and, uh, and General Bulldog, like, he was my uh, group yeah. commander, like, South Africa. Like, he's legit. Like, he, he's just one of those, two, like, he started off as an E1, right? Made it all the way to one star. Like, that's how solid this dude is. But he ended up punching out because he couldn't deal with all the politics that was going on within the ranks. And you wrote an article detailing this, pretty much saying, hey, in order, like, you got to get in line to move along, right? You got to toe the line of whoever is, you know, it right now, whether that's, you know, that, that two story and your one story, you got to do what you need to do to get. And, and, and I'm like, you know what? Like, that's not how the military should be. Like, it should be, hey, like, I have my obligation to my subordinates. I'm going to keep fighting for them and take care of them, you know, because that's what you're there for. Right? You're not there to, you know, take care of yourself, right? Your superiors are supposed to take care of you. It's supposed to be like a trickle-down effect, right? Four-star takes care of the three, three takes care of the two, like, all the way down to the lowest price, right? That's how it should be. And right. it's not like that anymore. And it's our recruiting sucks. Across the board, I think the Marine is the only ones that actually made their recruiting numbers. It's probably because of the uniform, but everybody else is sucking as far as recruiting goes. It's it's like like it's 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 not looking pretty for us at all as far as recruiting goes. No, uh, and I, I don't know how it's going to change. I don't know when it's going to change. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm confident it will come back around. We just need some. It will. It will through, so to speak, in the next three or four years, and it it'll it, it theoretically should work itself out. All right, so uh, you get out. Um, and now you have your Dorlius Real Estate, Real Dorlius, Dorlius Investment Group, uh, yeah. real estate company, and the Green Beret Chronicles. Tell me about them both. Yeah, so Dorlius Investment Group, like I mentioned, I've had that since 2014, right? Because, like, I always knew that, hey, when I get out of the military, like, I'm not going to want to work for anybody else. So I opened it with the end in mind of while I'm in, because I was, you know, uh, nine years ago, while I'm in, I'm going to invest all my money because I don't need it right now, right? I'm going to live off the money that I'm making with the military. Um, so every realistic bonus that I got, you know, every extra penny that I had, I started to park it in real estate. Um, and I've been doing that for the last nine years to the point where I retired three months ago. Um, everything started to come to flourishing as far as my real estate holdings, taking care of my day-to-day and taking care of my family. So that's the uh, real estate investment company, uh, which is mostly just buy and hold, both residential and commercial real estate. Uh, and then Green uh, Marine Chronicles. So once I decided to get out, again, I did my first on time, uh, 16 months. And then um, once I was done with that, I told the folks that were in charge, hey, I'm done. I'm going to medically retire because uh, I had the shoulder and the knee that was bothering me. And that was ground enough to get medically separated. So did a medical retirement at 20. Uh, and then, again, we all go through this same identity crisis once we decide to get out. It's yep. like, okay, the last 20 years, you know, I was in jail, you know, in an orange jumpsuit, you know, room and board, you know, food provided. Like, I was institutionalized. Now I'm getting ready to go back into the real world, be a big boy. Like, what am I going to do with my life? Right? And a lot of guys can't escape that that identity crisis, right? So they trade one uniform for another. 
they take off the green scooter and they put their GS hat on. It's, it's still in the same safe bubble that they know. And I was like, and uh, I had a couple of old timers working in the office. And one day I came in, I was just sitting there, just, just listening and observing. And this one dude was telling, you know, war stories from like 1993, like Desert Storm. And I'm like, holy, God. I was like, man, this is, we're at 2022, you know? And I'm like, you know what? I, I don't want to be that guy. Like, that, this is not going to be me. Uh, I'm not going to trade one uniform in for another, but I still wanted to give back to the regiment. I still wanted to give back to, uh, you know, the army, country, and all that good stuff, because I know what it's done for me. So it's like, well, how do I do that? Um, I'm 38. I still got a lot of fight left in me. Uh, I still, I love to coach, teach, mentors some of these younger kids. And I just, you know, uh, wrote a business plan. I was like, hey, like, what's the end state? Well, I have 20 years of experience. Um, I've witnessed a lot of things and I know what happens in cycles. So how do I translate? Well, how, how do I transfer that over to, to the next generation? I'm like, well, where is the next generation right now? Uh, they're all on social media. So I was like, okay, bet. Let me, you know, start this company, get on social media and I'll transfer the knowledge. Uh, through that means, whether it's mentorship calls or whether it's me just making videos and posting them on YouTube. Uh, and that's what I've been doing for the last, uh, a year or so. So I started once I gave up my first long position. I was like, yep, I'm done. Got with PAO, got the blessing. And I was like, yep, if anybody needs me, I'll be on social media. Right. And let me know if you guys need me to come in and do whatever. Uh, and, and I've just been doing that, man. And I've, I've, it's filled that void that I've been missing as far as. Uh, getting to interact with these newer uh, uh, soft soldiers, right? So your 18x rays, your civilians that are trying to join the army but have no idea what's going on. Because uh, I I was there once, so I'm like, hey, if I can keep somebody from experiencing that burden, then why not? Uh, and that's what I've been doing for the last year. It's awesome, man. Uh, I've checked out some of the stuff again on YouTube uh, at Green Beret Chronicles. Uh, check it out there. The, the content's great. Uh, the conversations are real, you know, and I, I think that's, you know, the authenticity of it really is kind of, and we've heard it, you know, I've heard it here talking to you for the last hour plus, but, you know, you get a sense that this is, you know, um, it's where the rubber meets the road and it's a no BS assessment of where we are. And, um, you know, as you said earlier, this isn't for everybody. So let's not sugarcoat about what it is and what it isn't. Um, this is an offer, take it or leave it. But, just know what you're getting into the minute you, you say yes. And that, that, you know, requires a certain level of commitment that you should know at the beginning, whether you have, or you don't. Right. If you have to think about the level of commitment, you're not committed enough. Like that. It's as simple as that to say. Um, And so you should either know or don't know. And and to a certain extent, it's better off. if You just say, Nope, I'm good. I'll pass. I just else for me or just the regular army is good for me. Right. And that's fine. (laughs) Right. There's right. nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with that at all. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Um, it's better to understand who you are and where your strengths are than than to not. Um, so, where do at you- the end of the day, folks do make it through the cracks, you know. And the worst thing you want is, you know, because we'll have these guys that show up that we're not really sure about or whatever. Uh, but there's no shittier feeling than taking that guy down range and something happens and you know you know like in your bones like that guy should not have been right because uh, at the end of the day he's still an american he's still another soldier and nobody wants to see that happen so if i'm talking to a guy on a mentorship call and 
You know, like I'm I'm gonna tell them straight up, right? Hey man, like you're not cut out for this. Like you are worried about the wrong things. Like you're asking the wrong questions. Before you get back in touch with me, figure all these out. Right. And if you can't, then you probably shouldn't go because you're wasting your time. Um, and that's what's missing, uh, especially with the youth nowadays, is just that raw feedback, which you know, you can't like life is like you can't escape it, right? Like certain things just have to be said. Guys might not like it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's the truth, right? Because when you go to war, like it's 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 a different world, right? And uh your feelings and all that stuff isn't gonna, you know, save you, right? So but I'm I mean, so far it's been working out. You know, some of the feedback that I've been getting, the guys appreciate it and I love giving them that raw feedback. You hope uh, to and I'm just trying to make a difference. Where do you where do you hope to take it? Do you have any um, idea? One more time, please. Do you have any idea what like what you want it to be in the future? Is it I mean, is it where it's supposed to be now or what what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's exactly where it's supposed to be. I'm I'm trying to grow it to where it's not just um, me on the enlisted side. I got my old team leader. He's getting ready to retire uh, next next year, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel type. So he'll handle the officer side. So he'll mentor all the officers, and uh, I'll mentor all the enlisted dudes. And sometimes we'll get on a call together and mentor the a uh, uh, military side of it. And I'm also trying to figure out a way to take it to the civilian sector too, because you and I both know there's a there's a lot of things that we learn in the military that the uh, civilian um, uh, uh, culture can benefit from, right? So um, hopefully, within the next year, like I have a plan to transfer that over, uh, whether that's in the form of personal accountability, discipline, mental toughness, uh, just sharing all those uh, vignettes that you know, like we've all learned through combat that they can benefit from, right? So just finding a way to serve the civilian population also. Again, it's Green Bray Chronicles on YouTube, uh, Dorlius Investment Group. If you need some real estate in the North Carolina area, in the Fayetteville area, right? <laughs> if you're yeah, ever down. Yeah. <laughs> Look, man, I, I, I love your story. I love your passion. I think it's great. Um, you know, there was, there's obviously a lot more that we, we, we didn't have a chance to get to, um, you know, from the combat standpoint, but you know, uh, you, you hit on some real keynotes, man. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I, I would argue that you need to pick a better word than decent. Um, there's nothing that's, <laughs> career. there's nothing that's decent about, uh, you as a soldier or a green beret for that matter. So, uh, if you won't say it, I will, uh, we, we, we have passed decent, decent is described like, you know, a, a, a sandwich from Jimmy John's. It's decent. Yeah. <laughs> that don't ever tell your wife she looks decent. She right. really like <laughs> Don't, don't describe your wife as looking decent. Uh, has this look looks decent? Yeah, you're gonna be in trouble. So, <laughs> continued success with with the uh, with the YouTube channel and, and the podcast, man. Uh, keep spreading the word. We need we need great voices in this space. We need people who are passionate about it. We need people who can provide others with direction, and that's really what it what is going to help. You know, get more people back into the fold of wanting to to do this life of service and live this life of service going forward, even at the highest levels like you did. So uh, much, much love and appreciate all the work you're doing, brother, man. That's great stuff. Okay. Awesome, man. Hey, I appreciate the time words. I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate you having me on. Glad I was able to come and uh, share my story. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, Send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.